um, this is just an aside, but in case you're not aware, um, Monday I got a message from Facebook that uh, said that I was uh, placed in Facebook jail. In my on my personal page, I was put on Facebook jail in face, Facebook jail for two days. On the Redeeming Grace Baptist Church side, I was placed in Facebook jail till September, and I didn't have the first clue why. Um, I tried to appeal it, but the, all there is button clicks, you know. Um, so there's no place for me to type in what's going on, what's this all about. In any case, uh, Wednesday morning, on a whim, I checked my personal Facebook page, and it worked. And so, just intrigued, I went out to the Redeeming Grace Baptist Church Facebook page and tested it, and it worked. I'd already set up to work with Jim's phone in case, because we discovered, Jim and I discovered that they didn't lock the page, they just locked me. Um, and so... When, it, when Jim's page worked on Tuesday, or Jim's ability to post on Facebook, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church's page on Facebook, I checked Wednesday morning and I was back on again. So I don't know why I was kicked off, why it was turned back on again. I got no message that it was turned back on. Um, it just said that I was off till September for violations of community standards. I don't know what that means. Don't know what I did. Be that as it may, um, I certainly don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but there's no question that um, Facebook's community standards and the Christian community standards are radically different. I can only assume that perhaps that was the reason why I was stopped from, but why they turned me back on again, I do not know. Um, in any case, be that as it may, um, this doesn't surprise me. This doesn't surprise me at all. I suspect that this will probably start to happen more and more often, even with little old churches like us. People say, well, people pick on a little church. Why would they pick on a little church? Why not go for the big church? Well, the big church is a big splash. Little church is no splash at all. You know, experiment with the little stuff first. Does that make sense? And see if the little stuff float, floats by. And if the little stuff floats by, then you try for the bigger stuff. Um, I suspect that's the case. I don't know. It could have been just a glitch, a mistake. They discovered the mistake and corrected it. I don't know. At the same time, just so you're aware that that is happening, there is a possibility that we could eventually experience where we are removed from Facebook. That possibility is real, so I'm exploring other options and other alternatives at this point in time. I'll keep you updated if we come up with other alternatives. We're going to keep broadcasting on Facebook as long as they will allow it, of course. But um, if, uh, if it reaches a point where that is not an option anymore, we better already have built in other options. So we're going to work on seeing what we come up with. Um, we have to admit that, that, um, that the world is against the gospel. We have to acknowledge that. And uh, we have been, been in a, a unique situation in world history where for 200 plus years we have been able to float through without any um, effectively negative consequences. I believe, if, as you know, I believe these times are coming to a conclusion. Uh, and I believe that, uh, that things are going to change wholesale and we'd best be prepared. Remember, we've said many times, haven't we, about this is a time of preparation, and when the time of preparation is over, if you haven't prepared, it's kind of like the, the parable of the virgins, of the 10 virgins with their, with their lamps. Ten, five didn't have oil, five did. Well, that's the idea, we'd best be prepared. Um, we, we, again, we have lived in this weird anomaly of 
of world history. And I suspect this will not last forever. I expect that, that things will dramatically change and match what has happened all through history. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And uh, so, uh, nothing to fear. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, right? And uh, what does, does darkness overcome light or does light overcome darkness? Light over, always overcomes darkness. So we have much to be confident in. I'm not afraid, I'm not concerned about it. We just have, you know, we've got to make plans. And so we're working on making plans. I'm looking at other, at other um, avenues such as Rumble and a few other places where we can broadcast where they don't at this point in time have that kind of control nor that, kind, that type of interest in controlling. So that could obviously all change in an instant as well. But, but uh, looking at other avenues uh, for possibilities. So if any of you know of any other avenues as well, please feel free to pass them on because we certainly want the gospel of Jesus Christ to continue to spread. Amen? So with that in mind, we are in Matthew chapter 6. Before we get into Matthew chapter 6, I just want to uh, speak to those who may be watching on, uh, on Facebook this morning. Uh, and that is to say to you all, uh, on Facebook, uh, just a reminder that you are welcome here. We're excited about you watching. Uh, last week we had 46 people watching. Um, and so we're excited about that. However, uh, we want to also remind you that watching online is not the same as fellowshipping corporately in a corporate body of believers. And so I would exhort you, as soon as you are possibly able, that you would be uh, making sure that you are connecting with and and fellowshipping within worship, uh, the corporate body of believers, whether it's with us or another church, that you are connecting and uh, regularly worshiping in that manner. I believe that there is a mysterious thing that takes place at church at, at the corporate worship, um, and that mysterious thing is uh, that God mysteriously uh, moves by his grace in a different way than those who are not connected um, and not connecting with other believers in that corporate worship uh, time frame. So with that in mind, we are in, in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6, uh, a couple things I want to say before we jump into the text itself. Uh, we are working our way through Matthew 5 through 7, and Matthew 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it takes place probably on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and the multitudes have been following Jesus for a period of time, and he now shows up at the beginning of chapter 5 at uh, the Sea of Galilee and he begins to preach to the multitudes a message that is the largest of all of his messages recorded in the New Testament um, and obviously even this is not a word-for-word -word, uh, recording of and documenting of his message it is a synopsis of his message and uh, explaining the points of his message accurately uh, correctly and inspired but, um, but I'm sure there were many other things uh, that he said that are not included here. But this is what the Spirit included for us to hear and to read. I want to also remind you that in order to understand Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, properly and appropriately, we have to remember Matthew 4, 17, where Matthew records from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is... And shortly thereafter, we come to his first message that he preaches. So we have to see 5 through 7 in light of verse 17. The point of, and I know we've said this every time, so please bear with me in case there's people listening for the first time. The point of the message, the point, the goal, the objective 
the, the focus, the direction that Jesus is heading towards is to explain what the hearer, or in our case, what the reader, must realize they need to repent of. That's the point of his message. The point of his message is not primarily to tell the hearer what they need to do or who they need to be. In fact, you would argue, I would argue anyway, that in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5, what is called the Beatitudes, Jesus is effectively saying, this is not what you need to, who you need to be. It's too late if you're not that already. Does that make sense? This is the time of blessing. This is not primarily a call or even at all a call to be this type of person in this text. This is a, uh, Jesus exposing the hearer, or in our case, the reader, to the idea that it's not you. Therefore, you cannot receive the blessing, and all you can do is receive the curse. Now, that's 3 through, three through 12. I want to just review real quickly chapter 5 before we get to chapter 6. It's important that we do so. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, again, is the what has been called the Beatitudes. But it's important that we understand that, again, Beatitudes is not the point. This is not God calling us, or Jesus calling us, as I just said, to be this way and to live this way and to think this way and act this way. He is saying this is a time of blessing. Come forward and receive your blessing. But nobody's able to. He's exposing, in other words, what they need to repent of because they're hopeless. They have not been this at any moment in time, nor could they ever be this. Because God's standard is what again? Absolute perfection. So they could never be this. So therefore, they could never receive the blessing. That's the point of 3 through 12. It's absolute, unabashed, clear, laid out as plainly as possible to the one who has ears to hear that they have no hope. The idea is calling to repentance. You have no hope otherwise. After verse 12, he moves into 13 through 16 with the two discussions about salt of the earth and light of the world. And in a very real way, although there's a micro trans transition taking place here, in a very real way, it's the capstone of 3 through 12. Three through, uh, 12. Because what he's saying in, in 13 through 16 is that's who you're supposed to be, the salt of the earth. That's who you're supposed to be, the light of the world. And being salt, being light would have evidenced itself in 3 through 12. Does that make sense? That's the connection. 13 through 16, he's saying, this is who you were designed to be by God. You were created to be. If you were that, it would 3 through 12 would evidence itself. However, because it didn't evidence itself, the reality is you've lost your taste. You're under a bushel. Again, absolute condemnation. From there, the next section, so you could really argue that the Beatitudes section, what we call the Beatitudes section, can run from 3 all the way through verse 16 because of the connection between uh, 3 through 12 and 13 through 16. He makes a shift in 17 through 20, again, a subtle shift. Each one of these shifts are subtle, but an important shift. What he does, in light of their condition, their only hope humanly speaking, 
If all they said through verse 16 is true, their only hope is that Jesus would do what? That he would abolish the law. Because they're thoroughly condemned. Because they have not achieved, nor could they ever achieve, absolute perfection. So he addresses that very thing. The Messiah doesn't come, didn't come, wouldn't ever be considered coming as a canceler or an abolisher of the law. Quite to the contrary, he came to do what none of you did. That's the point. He came to do what none of you did. He came to fulfill the law. Not only didn't any of you do that, but none of you could ever do that. I came, he says, not to abolish it, them, but to fulfill them. And then he lays out the reality that that is never the case. The abolishment was never and will never be the case. Will never be on the table, so to speak. It's not negotiation. It's not on the table. Was never on the table. Will never be on the table. Ever. I will not abolish any of it. Not even an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And then he concludes that section by saying, For I tell you that unless you're, if in case we didn't get it in verses 3 through 16, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, among humanity, they were the ones who were more perfectly doing it than anybody else. And unless you, your righteousness exceeds them, what does he say? You will, what? Never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have, get the hopelessness perspective here? It's absolutely hopeless. And then from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, we have this series. Again, a transition takes place here. A subtle transition, but a transition takes place. Because he moves into the next topic, which is not a different topic, but he's, it's like he's approaching the same topic, but he's approaching it from different perspectives, if I may put it that way. So he's talking about this whole law and interaction with the law by the people and the interaction with the law by God, right? And so what he's doing, it's like he's looking at this diamond called the law. And the people's interaction with the law. And, God, and Jesus himself's interaction with the law. He's in, and when he looks at himself in interaction with the law, he's looking at it from three different perspectives. He looks at it from the perspective of he's not going to abolish it, but fulfill it, right? But then he's looking at it in verses 21 to the end of the chapter. He's looking at the law from the perspective of him being the what and what. He is the lawgiver and the judge, judge, right? And so that's the subtle difference that takes place in 21 through uh, the end of the chapter or chapter 5. He keeps saying, you have heard that it was said, and he lists usually a statement from the Ten Commandments, but not always. And then the very last one that we saw last week, it's a corruption of the law even. To show them how far they've moved themselves from the law. They've even corrupted the very core of the law. It is the very core, isn't it? Love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Right? That's an absolute corruption of the very core of the law, isn't it? Two greatest commandments. So he, he has an interaction in 21 to the end of the chapter saying, You've heard that it was said this, but, and then the lawgiver speaks and judge speaks, but I tell you, this is the truth regarding the law, and you're doomed. So we're still having the same theme going, don't we? It's just a subtle difference each time. But in 21, what it, it, the, the change is interesting because 
we go from in 3 through 16, or actually 3 through 12, 3, yeah, 3 through 12, Jesus being the bearer of good news. Right? It's time to be blessed. That's bearer of good news, isn't it? Jesus goes from being bearer of good news in 3 through 12. It's time to be blessed. To what? But you know what? That's not you. Condemnation. He goes from being the one who's crying out, come to be blessed, to you're cursed. And that's 13 through 16. And in light of those two sections that are very tightly intertwined, that's when we come to 21 through the end of the chapter when he says, since you're condemned, now I'm going to be the lawgiver. I'm going to remind you as the lawgiver what the law means, and I'm going to remind you you're doomed. I'm the judge. And that brings us to chapter 6. And I go over that very specifically because we need to see there's a transition that takes place in chapter 6. All this discussion of time to be blessed or cursed, <laughs> you're, you're cursed. <laughs> and then here's what the law really means as a lawgiver. And because you failed, I'm going to be your judge. Two... A different perspective and it is subtle but it's an important difference because I think in chapter 6 and following we're going to find we're going to find that Jesus moves from but not from what he's been doing before did you hear what I just said he's going to move from what he was saying in, not not contrary to but he's going to move from what he was saying in chapter 5 and yet not move from what he was saying in chapter 5 what I mean by that is he's saying the exact same things, but the emphasis is different. The emphasis is radically different. So it's a subtle shift, but it's actually a radical shift at the same time. Because unlike what I was saying in chapter 5, where we could argue, especially in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, I argued that this has nothing to do with how you need to be today. This has nothing to do with what you need to do Although elsewhere the scriptures tell us that we are, are to be meek and, and poor and, and humble and all the rest, right? That was not at all in 3 through 12 on Jesus' radar screen in 3 through 12, what we got to be. Okay, this is what I'm talking about, about a subtle but important change. In chapter 5 again, verses 3 through 12, he's not at all telling these hearers this is who you ought to be. This is fulfillment of time, time to be blessed. And then it shifts a little bit, and so we can, in, in, especially uh, in 21 and following, you can look at 21 and following, and, and <coughs> as a believer, you can drag out even more, it becomes more valuable, although still secondary, we must keep the, the, the primary point he's driving toward is the primary point, okay? If you, in, in 21 and following, 21 to the end of the chapter, you have this primary point still being driven, you're doomed. Correct? That is absolutely essential, primary. We must focus on that completely all the way through chapter 5. But in 21 through 48, he starts bringing something else to bear as he explains for the first time. There was no explanation before. Now he's explaining what the, the law actually was saying, right? 
And so when, he, when he's actually commentating on the law, there is a secondary value, and I use that, that term very specifically, there's a secondary value and purpose for those that section 21 through 48 as a believer on the other side of being made alive to look at the text and say, this is what the law means, correct? And I understand that, and that is, as we know, we've talked about, it is an appropriate response to the one who is being loved by, to God by the one who is being first loved by God, right? So therefore, I respond in love back. This is telling me this is an appropriate way for me to love. At the same time that even as a believer, we look at that, we must say to ourselves, the primary point of this text is what? We need to repent. We always got to go back to that, right? Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we come to chapter 6, the subtle change, and it becomes very evident very quickly that Jesus moves off, for the most part, off of this time to be blessed, completely moves off that one. Not that he's denying it, but he moves off of it into the next point. And, and the idea of him being judge and lawgiver still shows up, but it becomes much more minor as it doesn't show up itself as clearly or as often. Does that make sense so far? Something else begins to come to play. He starts to change the very tone of his presentation. Yet at the same time, the primary point of the text is what? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That must always be there from chapter five, verse one, all the way to the very end of chapter seven. The primary point is repent. But it's interesting, the change is such that you could look at chapter 6 and say, and I think appropriately so, that at the same time that he's calling to repentance, and that is unrelenting, at the same time that the, the shift in his message is, is interesting as well, because even though the primary is to call to repentance, it's almost as if Jesus, in his methodology of preaching, is saying, there may be some who what? In this, in this crowd. Who may now, after chapter 5, be repenting. There may be some. There may be. We know, that, we know the disciples are sitting right in front of him. So maybe there are some, and there may have been some of John the Baptist's followers, right? They were there. So th th there may be some, and so you sense there's a dramatic shift that begins to take place that continues all the way through chapter 6. You'll hear it right away in verses 1 through five, 4. Let me read it to you, because that's where we're going to be this morning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may be given, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> I hope you pick up that, that that sounds really different from chapter 5. I hope you recognize that. If you don't, you need to read through chapter 5 again and then read chapter 6. We don't have time to do that. Read chapter 6, 1 through 4. You'll see there's a, there's a definite shift in Jesus' communication 
with the, with the Jewish hearers at this point in time in chapter 6 from chapter 5. Now, I want to say a couple things first before we start pack, unpacking the text itself. In my translation, there's an uninspired heading on the translation that says, giving to the needy. Does anybody have a different heading or something that's really different? How to give. How to give. What is the King James? Do you have a heading on yours on the King James? Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Religious what? Oh, ostentatious. Ostentation, yeah. Okay. Good. That, that, that's actually not, not so bad. Um, Concerning alms and prayer. Concerns alms and prayer or giving. Uh, so most, most of your uninspired headings will have something about givings, alms, that, that type of thing. I think that's a serious mistake. I think it's a really serious mistake. And now, obviously, not, not inspired. But it, I think it's a seriously, seriously bad mistake, and here's the reason why. <clears throat> the emphasis, and you're going to see this right now when I say it, the emphasis of chapter 6, at least in the beginning through, um, uh, through verse 18, is on verse 1 of chapter 6. I want to read... Chapter one, verse or chapter six, verse one here, real quick. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The point of this section of verses, all the way through verse uh, eighteen, is about practicing righteousness for all the wrong reasons. That's why I said King James. Their uninspired heading is, is closest to accurate. That's a perfect one. The, the point of verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 6 is about practicing righteousness wrongfully. Or practicing righteousness before others. Or another way to put it is practicing righteousness for the wrong reasons, with the wrong goals. We could describe it in many different ways. So what Jesus does, chapter 6, verse 1, is Jesus lays out what he's going to talk about, or the title, you can put it this way, the title of this point, his second major point of the Sermon on the Mount. His second major point is beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will receive no reward, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the point he's trying to make. Then he has three sub-points that are illustrative points or three illustrations that he teaches about to try to skin out the point he's making in 6.1. So his point is Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people for all the wrong reasons. And then the first illustration is giving to the needy. Verses 2 through 4. The second illustration he gives is how you pray. And again, it's the point is before other people. And then the third one is about fasting. And once again, it's about before other people. Three illustrations. All three are about before other people, and all of them are about self-righteousness versus true righteousness. You follow me so far? 
We are only going to look at the, the statement that he makes in verse 1 this morning and his first illustration. Now, I want to say this as we work our way into it. It is very easy. It is very easy to look at this text and be really wooden with all three of these illustrations. And, and to say to ourselves, well, unless this illustration fits me perfectly, then it's not talking about me. And therein is where we will do grotesque error. And we will excuse ourselves when we ought not to be excused. And we're going to see it real quickly in, in, in our, first, our first illustration about giving to the needy. So it's very important that we think more, not isolatedly to the actual points he makes, but we think about the points he makes and think about them globally. If that makes sense, hopefully that'll come into more clarity as we work our way through. Now, lastly, before we get into the text, again, the point Jesus is making, we must not deviate from. The call is to repent, which means that when Jesus is talking here about repentance, whether it's chapter 5, chapter 6, or chapter 7, just a little clue that I, I think I've gotten across really clearly already. But in chapter 5, 6, and 7, when, when he makes a point or, or describes an area that, must, that the people must repent of, he is very purposely choosing every single time universal sin that everyone is involved in. Everyone. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is in no point through chapter 5 through chapter 7 can we ever stop and say, oh yeah, so and so. Not allowed. There are times in the scriptures you could do that. But they're really rare. <clears throat> They are really, really rare. Especially in chapter 5 through 7, you can't do it. Because Jesus talked about the universality of our need to repent. So if we find ourselves reading through chapter 5, since we're done with chapter 5 now, if, if we find ourselves going through chapter 5 and saying, well, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, you have a hard heart. It is you, and it is me. Every single verse. And if you don't see yourself there, then you didn't look hard enough. But the Spirit's not opening your eyes to see. Because it is you, and it is me. Because the human condition is not different. The human dilemma is not different for any of us. And Jesus is purposefully hitting the things that apply to every single hearer. So in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice the very first word in the ESV is what? Beware. Beware. Some translations may say stand on your guard or be on your guard or other terms that are synonymous or corollaries to that. Beware. It's an interesting term. It's a, it's, it's a very strong term. It's one of the stronger terms in the scripture. Not the strongest term, but it's one of the stronger terms, statements in the scriptures in one word. Beware. 
uh, you could break it down into two words very easily. Could you not? What, if you broke that down into two words instead of one, what would it be? Be aware. Beware. So that's all the word beware is. It's a combination of two words. Be aware. But the idea that when he says beware is really an interesting concept that Jesus is trying to cry, get across. When he says beware, there's a couple things he's trying to communicate to the hearer. If he says to you beware, it means that firstly, what he's about to say to you is very what? Important. important and it's what? Very common or another way to put it is it's everywhere. Everywhere. <clears throat> um, let, me, let me try to create an illustration to get, get the point across. When you drive down the road in Pennsylvania, they have these, I call them stupid signs. You'll occasionally see a sign that says something like, like, pay attention. Right? What? As if there's no other point when you're driving you need to pay attention, but here you need to pay attention. Strange, isn't it? You look away from the road it. But my point is, when you're driving, the idea is you should always pay attention, right? And it's a nice little, I guess, a little reminder if you're dozing off, whatever. But if you're dozing off, you're probably not seeing the sign anyway. But the idea is when you get behind the road, behind the wheel, from the moment you start the car up to the moment you get out of the car, probably better put, but from the time you get into the car to the time you get, get out of the car, what should you be doing? Paying attention. Focusing on the task at hand, Right? Should you, is there, is there a time, if we use illustration, is there a time when you're driving your car where you don't have to pay attention? Is there a time when you can, in your mind, be absolutely elsewhere and still be safe? No. You're hurtling down the road if you're following the speed limit at 55 miles an hour and there's cars coming at you all the time at 55 miles an hour added up, that's 110. Right? It's 110. And all that's keeping that car that's coming at you at 55 while you're going 55, all that's keeping you apart from them is what? A piece, a little bit of paint on the road, but the, but the paint's not doing anything, is it? Your, your faith is based upon that that other person is doing what? Paying attention, right? And their faith is that you're paying attention, correct? And it, and it goes on the whole time. From the time you get behind the wheel to the time you get back out again. You, you're, you're, you, the moment we stop paying attention, what happens? We start drifting, right? We start wandering across the line. We missed the point that the car in front of us has stopped. We didn't see that red light. We didn't see the stop sign. We didn't see the pedestrian. We go on and on, right? We didn't see the turn in the road that somebody put there while I was trying to sleep. But whatever the case may be, when you get behind the wheel, to the time you get out, out from behind the wheel, the task at hand is to beware. Why? 
Because there is hundreds of thousands of scenarios that can happen every time we get behind the wheel, right? And they're there all the time. Beware. The implication of the word beware is that if you're not, what's going to happen? Trouble is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. Really bad things are going to happen. In other words, the point Jesus is trying to make here with what he's about to say is at every, this is the key, at every moment, you never get a moment where there's a pass from bewaring what I'm about to tell you to beware about. At every single moment, you must, because God's standard is what again? Absolute perfection. At every single moment, you need to be aware of something. You need to beware with regard to something. Because the moment, and the implication of the text is the moment that we cease being aware of the danger, it's not like driving. How many times have we have we kind of lulled ourselves into sleep even though our eyes were still open and we're thinking about something else where our minds are elsewhere, we're yelling at the kid in the back seat or we're digging around for our next CD or whatever the case may be and when all is said and done, nothing bad happened. We're eating a sandwich, we're playing with the radio and nothing bad happens. Probably 99.9% .9 of the time, right? Does that make sense? And then all of a sudden, what happens? You're playing with the CD and you'll look up and you're, you're in somebody else's lane. There's a car coming at you. And you freak out and you swerve back into your road, right into your lane. And nothing bad happened except your heart is now at 190. <laughs> and you're sweating. And you're wide awake and you're focused for how long? About, about two or three minutes and you're trying to put the CD back in again, aren't you? Isn't that the craziest thing? The difference between my illustration and Jesus, what he's going to talk about in a little bit, his statement and his illustration, is the moment when it comes to spiritual things. The moment that we shift from where we ought to be to playing around with the spiritual CD, to use the illustration, at that moment, the crash happens. That's what happens. That's the difference. As much as, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, as much as we know we should beware on the road, and yet we also know that 99.9% .9 of the time we'll get through scot-free. When it comes to spiritual things, we will never get through scot-free. Ever. Not once. Not one moment. That's... So, the, in the rules of the road, the beware is like here. When it comes to verse 6, verse 1 of chapter 6, it's here. Because the consequence is there almost every time is nothing. And once in a while, it's an accident. But even so, the chances of great damage is really low. But when it comes to spiritual eternal, it's eternal. And so he says, beware. He's warning the hearer, the, the, the reader, what I'm about ready to tell you will have dramatic and eternal effect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them 
And what is the warning? What is the consequence of this activity? We're going to talk about it in a second. Again, we've seen it before. For then you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Get the sense of the eternal consequence? Beware. Beware of what? Practicing your righteousness before the people. Because if you do, if you're not aware, if you're not focused, if this is not a driving focus of your heart, you will what? You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So you get the sense that this is, first of all, eternal, but you get the sense that if you don't, then. Right? You get it so far? Now, can we just say in the beginning, before we get into the text itself of verse 1, I know we're taking our time getting into verse 1. Can we just say right now, do you sense already the doom? If you were here at this point in time, whatever he's going to say after this, there's one thing I know. I kind of like it when people recognize my righteousness. I kind of like it. I want people to recognize that I'm godly. I find it offensive when someone doesn't recognize it. As evidenced by when somebody calls me on something, my natural reaction is to do what? And your natural reaction is to do what? Defend yourself. Correct? Why do you defend yourself? Because you want to be seen as righteous. Because you want to see, you want to be seen as righteous. Beware! We haven't gotten to the text and we, we already recognize. My goodness, I'm 62 years old. What have I been doing for 62 years? Over and over and over and over again, I've been doing what? Wanting to have my righteousness be seen by others. Haven't you? If you haven't, you're blind. You're absolutely blind. You're not in the light. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Very interesting the way Jesus puts this. It's, it, it is probably the second strongest warning in, in the Sermon on the Mount. The strongest one comes at the end of chapter 7. And it is interesting. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, before the people, in order to be seen by them. What he's talking about is beware of acting righteous, talking righteous, and, and functioning in a righteous perspective, referring to trying to obey the law, trying to obey, obey what God says, in order to be seen by them, in front of other people, in order to be seen by them. That does not mean that, that we shouldn't ever have our righteousness shown, because if you remember in chapter 5, what did, what did uh, Jesus say? Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Wait a second, it sounds kind of contradictory, doesn't it? 
Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He just said, practice your righteousness in chapter 5 so that it's seen by them. But now he says, don't do it so that they're seen by them. How do we put those two together? Well, it's really kind of simple, actually, and it's discovered in the text itself. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So far, it's the same as 6.1, right? But notice next, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See the difference? Here, it's to be seen by them. Period. There, it's so that who gets glory? God gets glory. Not so that you do. So that God is magnified, so that his fame is spread, so that people recognize that it is God, not you. See the difference? Radical difference. One is self-righteousness. The other one is for the glory of God. Now, Here's what's interesting. In chapter 5, verse 16, it is, let your light shine so that others will see your good works and glorify God. Because, why would they glorify God? Because you, the one who is, whose good works are shining, are also what? Glorifying God. Bring glory to God, not to you. Correct? But in chapter 6, what we have in verse 1, the idea is beware of practicing your righteousness with the goal of other people seeing it. In order to be seen by them. What's the problem? What's the real problem here? Here's the real problem. When it gets down to the core of the text, and of, 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 of the understanding here. It is this. If you and I are believers, if we have repented and believed, then there's, some, there's several things we know by the Spirit, right? We know who is judge? God is judge. Jesus is judge. We recognize because he's given us a new heart, Ephesians chapter 2. He's made us alive. He's given us faith to believe. He's transformed us to good works. Right? Ephesians chapter 2. See the interplay? But those good works are for the glory of God. But if I'm a believer, I'm recognizing who I am and who he is and what he has done in me, bringing me to repentance and believing. And recognizing him as the king of the kingdom that is at hand. And as a result, worshiping him as the king of the kingdom that is at hand from heaven. And I recognize, as we've seen through chapter 5, and we'll see again in chapter 6 in just a little bit, that he is the lawgiver and the judge. And one day I will stand before the judge... And the one thing I know, and that is that the creature is not the judge. Does that make sense? The creature is not the judge. I know that because he's made me alive. And, and as a result, I've repented and believed. 
But what's happening in verse 1 of chapter 6, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What are you actually doing? You are saying, they are my ultimate judge. I must perform before my judge. And my fellow man becomes my ultimate judge. By the way, this becomes really intriguing. That's why Peter said to, to the leaders when they told him to quit preaching the gospel, he said what? We, what was it? No, he, he, said, he said, we must obey God rather than men. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Because he recognizes who the judge is. <coughs> and he recognizes who the lawgiver is. <coughs> and he recognizes the one who really loves him. And he recognizes the one who paid the penalty for his sin and stood in his place. He recognizes the one who has given him his righteousness and has placed him in his own place. And as a result, he looks at him and he says, I must be obey God rather than men. Cost is not an issue. The price is never too high. You find him no longer fearful of humans who are trying to function as a judge. And instead, Peter says, no, God is my judge. End of discussion. End of story. And that's what he's warning us of here. Beware. Because the the longing at the very core of our being is to what? Be accepted by others, be received by others, have others as our friends, be approved by others. I'm choosing these words really carefully because Jesus does approve his own, does he not? And he is our dearest friend, is he not? And what acceptance can humans give us in comparison to the acceptance of the Holy One? That he would accept one like me who has gone astray and turned his own way and despised and mocked and ridiculed him. Beware. Beware. Why in the world would we ever, if we understand who Jesus is, and if we've been forgiven because we've repented of our sins, and if he's made us alive and all the rest of that, why would we ever put messianic weight to our friends? Why would we ever put messianic weight to our employers? Why would we ever put messianic weight to our neighbors? Why would we ever put messianic weight to our loved ones? To anyone? <laughs> any other human? Why in our minds would we ever do that? Well, there's only one reason why. It's because we haven't repented and believed. Now, we still struggle, I get that, as believers. And the warning should resonate from here. Beware! Because even as believers, guess what? 
Even as true believers, you know what happens? We have a tendency, don't we? It's not just a tendency, is it? It's like we're hardwired, isn't it? It's like we're almost hardwired to gain the approval of those around us. And we forget completely that one day they will stand before the judge. One day we'll stand before the judge. Why in the world we're both going to stand before the same judge? Why in the world would we treat those who are not judges as if they are judges? Beware. Beware. <clears throat> Self-righteousness gains you nothing. Who cares if every single person that you ever come in contact with thinks you are a righteous person. Can I, can I submit something to you? In the day of judgment, you will not be given by the judge the opportunity to bring your, your evidence before the judge. And you can drag all your loved ones and all your friends and all of your acquaintances and your employers and your fellow employees and you can drag them before the judge as character witnesses to your righteousness. It's not going to happen. They can parade. I mean, it's not going to happen, but even if they did, they can parade in front of the judge, Jesus, and say, Steve was this and this and this and this, and he evidences righteousness here, 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 and here. He's the most righteous guy I know. And the judge will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's what he'll say. Where? There's only one judge, only one lawgiver. That is it. Where? Now, on the one hand, it's condemning. To these lost people he's speaking to, it's condemning, is it not? Because what have they done their entire life? Live self-righteous lives. Beware. Why? Because here's the reality, Jesus says. If you do, and we all have, have we not? If you do, then you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. Jesus could not have spoken more clearly. Now, some people will look at the text before I unpack the end of the verse 1 a little more carefully. Some people will have a tendency to look at it and say, well, but Steve, wait a second, back up the horses. Jesus said, if you practice this, Right? The word practice is there. Get, read it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He says practicing, Steve. So as long as I'm not practicing it, it occasionally comes out, but I'm not practicing that, then, then it doesn't apply, right? And the answer is you missed the whole point. Because so, as a matter of fact, is that's don't we? Do it all the time. I remember growing up, if I'm going to use this as an illustration, I remember growing up in church, and maybe you've heard this, this phrase, maybe you haven't. 
I remember growing up in church and hearing adults talk about various people. And usually you hear adults talk about various people, it's not good, right? It's almost inevitably not good. But occasionally I'd hear an adult talk about some certain older person in our church. And they would say something along the lines of, that person is a real, real, I'm going to see if you know what I'm talking about, real prayer warrior, right? You ever heard anybody say that before? So-and-so person is a real prayer warrior. And I always said to myself, you know what? That's what I want to be. I want to be a prayer warrior. They didn't really understand it, but I thought it sounded really cool. I mean, warrior sounds cool to a little boy anyway, right? I thought, man, I want to be a prayer warrior. And I used to try to pray, try to pray, try to pray, try to pray, and fall asleep. <laughs> try to pray, didn't know what to pray about, didn't understand what prayer is, but now I'm going to be a prayer warrior. Self-righteousness, right? But you know what I found really interesting as I aged, as I grew up? And this day, I still hear people talk about a certain person here, a certain person here. I'm just using it as an illustration. Is a real prayer warrior. <laughs> but you know what I feel about every time I hear that, what I think about every time I hear that? Who's getting glory? Who's receiving glory? Every time. We're coming away saying, wow, praise the Lord. What an amazing God. Come away thinking about that person who's a prayer warrior. And we're thinking about his great praying. He's probably got callous knees. And all sorts of other things. Like, what's that all about? It's about that person, isn't it? What would happen if somebody said, oh man, you're such a prayer warrior. And the guy who prays said, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm, I'm floundering carnality all the time. At best, I'm just doing what a slave does. By the way, that is biblical. <laughs> At best, I'm just doing what a slave does, what a slave's supposed to do. This has nothing to do with me. This has to do with all with Jesus. Would that be appropriate? Would that be an appropriate response? But that's not what happens, is it? Frankly, I think, oh, you're such a, a great pastor, Steve. You're a great preacher, Steve. What should happen is what? Rebuke. What is Paul? What is Paulus? First Corinthians chapter 3. One plants, one waters, but it's what? God who yields the increase. What does Paul do? Give glory to himself? Receive glory for himself? No. He gives all glory to God. I'm just... And he even dumbs it down to what is Paul. He doesn't say who is Paul. He says what is Paul? What is Apollos? He impersonalizes the whole thing. It even frustrates me when I hear people talk about pastors or theologians. Oh, what a great preacher. What a great pastor. What a great teacher. What a phenomenal theologian. <clears throat> like, I think we're missing a point, aren't we? Why is that theologian? Why is that pastor? Why does that preacher exist? It's supposed to be for the glory of God. Instead, we just camp on what a great blank. And somewhere along the line, I start to wonder how much of that is fueled by their own self-righteousness. Right? Now, maybe the person declaring it's only their self-righteousness, right? 
But it may very well be a partnership of self-righteousness. It may very well be. <clears throat> no matter how well we pray, no matter how well we preach, no matter how well we evangelize, no matter how well we tell the truth, or whatever the case may be, and show our good, good works, if it's for people, and could I submit to you when I say if it's for people, if it is for people and God. I, I want to do a syncretic, syncretistic view here. If it's for people and God, it's for people. <clears throat> Very important we get this. We cannot mesh that because God is a jealous God. He does not share his glory with another. We're doing it for God and people? No, it's for people. Beware. Beware. Because the warning of the text is that's you. And it is, isn't it? He says, you will not. Or you will have no reward from your fathers in heaven. It's a stark statement. How much reward are you going to get? Zero reward. If you're getting zero reward, what does that mean? Now, in, in Matthew 5 through 7, we've got to understand if I'm not getting a reward, I'm getting something else. In chapter 5, it's if you're not getting the blessing, you're getting the cursing. In chapter 6, it's the same thing. If I'm not getting the reward, nobody goes to heaven with no reward. Nobody does. How do I know that? Because if God began the good work in you, he will what? Continue. He's faithful to continue it to the day of, to the day of, of our glory, when we're, when we're taken to glory. That's not a translation, but, or not an exact statement, but you get the idea. It's, it's the intent. If he began it, he will continue to work into perfection. <laughs> So there's no reward. Recognizing that all glory goes to God and anything we do is all because of him. If there's no reward, there must be a condemnation. And that's where he's going to go in chapter 7, into chapter 7. If there's no reward, there's only condemnation. And can I just say this right now? Uh, we're not going to get through 2 through 4 today. But that's okay, right? That's okay. There will be no Condemnation. There will be no reward, so therefore there will only be condemnation. Now, could I? I'm going to close on this. I just want to say it real quick. How much reward do you deserve? None. How much reward do I deserve? None. I hear Christians talk about it differently all the time, and we must never talk about it any other way but what we're saying right now I and you deserve no reward none in Philippians chapter 3 Paul makes it really clear his only hope is to have a righteousness that's not his own that's his only hope I, I do not deserve a reward I only deserve condemnation that's all I deserve. And left up to me, that's all I will ever receive. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus.
because he stood in my place. And he took on my sin. <clears throat> and he absorbed the wrath. And he placed me in his place and he gave me his righteousness. An alien righteousness. So that the judge can say, well done, good and faithful servant. All my paltry acts that inevitably are, what? Corrupted by my sin. <clears throat> All of my acts that are even Godward are corrupted by sin. Because I find myself syncretistically still doing it, don't I? And don't you. For God and man. I still do it. So do you. I don't deserve any reward. I only deserve the curse. And yet he grafted me into the vine. And he gave me his righteousness. And he adopted me as a son. And he gave me an inheritance that's uncorruptible, undefiled, and doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for me. And he's gone back to prepare a place for me, and he promises to return and take me to where he is so that I will be with him forever. That is all mercy. I deserve none of that. I deserve condemnation. Beware. Beware. At the same time as believers, as we are to beware, could I submit to you one of the greatest ways to beware? One of the greatest ways to beware is this. We will find ourselves more aware and being aware as we remember who we really are. As we cease not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think and remind ourselves all the time by the scriptures, by the truth, what God says who we are naturally. And then more importantly, even than that, that in light of that, that we remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done. And as we remind ourselves by the spirit of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what he is accomplishing, and what he has promised to accomplish, as we remind ourselves of who we are, in light of who Jesus is, you know what we will hear? We'll hear the clarion call, will we not? We'll hear the clarion call, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know what's really amazing? What is absolutely stunning What is absolutely stunning, after 62 years of my life of pursuing self-righteousness so many times and so often, and then syncretistically merging, trying somehow to merge them together, <clears throat> and yet, I find that when I repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us, Him, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He was this late, late date. He still cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. 1 John chapter 1. And he makes sure it brings us in, back into the light. We have fellowship. And we start to think about that and be reminded by the spirit of those things. 
we should have to realize how great is his mercy. And how great his salvation is. And how amazing his grace is. And how amazing his care for us is. And how faithful he is. <clears throat> and we start to realize how much our salvation is all of him, not of us. And that causes us to what? Rejoice. Worship. And it causes us to grieve. And repent. And rejoice. And worship. And grieve. And repent. And then by the Spirit, we start to become more and more a person who is starting to live a life of beware because we're seeing in greater and greater ways the truth of who Jesus is and how great and amazing he is and the contrast between all the people who are trying to practice self-righteousness becomes more and more striking does it not? beware We'll get into one of the three illustrations next week. You have to come back next week if you want to hear the rest of it. But uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, help us. As we go from here, because we, have, we are people who are not aware. We don't live a life of beware. And we find ourselves over and over practicing righteousness before the people as if they are our judge, so that they'll be seen, so we'll be seen by them. Realizing, by definition, if we're living our lives to be seen by them, we are not living our lives to be seen by you. So, Lord, I pray that you will help us be people who more and more, day by day, live our lives in the face of God. For your glory, for your praise. Knowing that we can never do this perfectly. And at the end of the day, and every moment in between, we are desperate for your mercy and your grace. For your forbearance. We need you and your patience and your love for us. Lord, we ask that your spirit work mightily in us. Open our eyes. Help us to see you first and primarily. And then in light of seeing you, help us to see ourselves more clearly. Help us to see that even as believers, we bring nothing to the table but our sin. We desperately need you. So work in us. In your name I pray. Amen.